Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello and welcome back to Brave New Teaching. We are excited to dig into one of our favorite nerdy topics today, and that is Shakespeare. And not just any Shakespeare, because we have done a few... I've actually lost track of how many how many Shakespeare episodes have we done? <laughs> At least four. Oh god, that's so many. <laughs> a lot. Of the podcast, we've done at least four, so this is at least number five. But we're gonna get into some specific parts of Shakespeare that like really give Shakespeare a place in any conversation in any contemporary English class. And that's talking about argument with the bard. That's talking about rhetoric. And it's talking about using Shakespeare in a AP Lang class, maybe. Or using Shakespeare in places that are unexpected because we're going to focus in on argument and not making an argument about Shakespeare, but on peeling apart the arguments within the text. And we are very excited about all of those things. Well, and we're really excited. You know, this might sound like disproportionate for all the time that Marie and I talk about like YA contemporary conversations and contemporary authors. It might seem kind of strange that we have so much here about Shakespeare, but truthfully, and if you've listened to these things, we're not here to like beg every level of English to teach Shakespeare, but we also recognize that so many curriculum maps that are given to teachers are, are empty. They say, teach this play, period. And teachers are scrambling for resources. And some of the resources that we found are just 
really outdated, not helpful. And we want to help you if Shakespeare's on your radar, if Shakespeare's something that you have struggled with or you're hitting a wall with, we want to help you turn that around. And one of the ways is through rhetorical analysis. I mean, this is such a powerful thread. Argument is king. I mean, this is teaching argument through the secondary ELA thread. I mean, this is the one I mean, it's not even one skill, the one type of set skill sets that is the most vital getting toward graduation, getting transferred into the workforce, getting transferred into adulthood. We just believe in rhetorical analysis so much that why not find a place for these two things to overlap? Well, and there's so many pieces to rhetorical analysis, which we're going to talk about. We are not assuming that anybody has any level of expertise in anything. So we're going to we're going to start bare bones and explain what we're talking about after the intro in just a second here. I do want to take a quick quick moment. If you have not checked out either of our Shakespeare teacher festivals, right here in the moment at the time of recording, we're a few weeks out from our second Shakespeare teacher festival that really digs into Shakespeare in the modern classroom and like how rhetoric and rhetorical analysis and uh, have have to do with all of the things that we're talking about today, but also like really specific strategies and ideas for bringing Shakespeare into the 21st century. That's this upcoming one. Last year, we did a Shakespeare teacher festival. If you were not able to join us, it was all about the basics. And like Amanda had said, so many resources we find and even some of the resources that we could get out of our own like catalogs or outdated. And so it was back to basics with the Bard, bringing Shakespeare with just kind of fresh eyes into your classroom. That was last year. This year upcoming is in a modern context, really making it accessible and engaging for today's students. If you've not had a chance to check it out, head to curriculumrehab.com slash Shakespeare to take a look at this year's festival and slash Shakespeare basics to look at last year's festival. We will link them in the show notes. I think it's time to dive into argument. What do you think? I'm ready for it. Always am. All right. Cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, and we are so much more than a podcast. We give teachers the inspiration, support, and tools to challenge the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a former English teacher from Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm a teacher from Southern California. Join us at bravenewteaching.com to find out more about our courses, festivals, and get every episode's show notes. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. So let's talk about what do we mean by rhetorical analysis? Because rhetorical analysis really is like a lot of things. And when we start talking about Shakespeare, we're going to zoom in really carefully. What do we mean? Why do we mean? What are we about? What are we, what are we? So when I say rhetorical analysis through the lens of Shakespeare, Amanda, what do we mean? Well, what I mean is starting with the rhetorical triangle. And I know that's you too. But that's not where I always started. You know, when I first started teaching rhetoric, again, it was like on a bullet list of teach rhetoric. And I was like, okay. And so my my gut instinct was to do a two or three day lesson on ethos, pathos, and logos and start at the beginning and assume kids didn't know anything and that you can't do rhetorical analysis unless you know ethos, pathos, and logos. Well, 
in this backwards world of professional development and actually helping English teachers know their content, I finally got a really nice training on this when I became an AP teacher, which wasn't until PS, the 11th year of my 13 year career so far. So yeah, not expecting any of you guys to be like, I knew that I would have started with the rhetorical triangle. Like I was like, what is this nonsense? Yeah, no, I mean, I started with ethos, pathos and logos because those were the methods of appeal. And I always found myself struggling. Like it made sense to me because we would look at advertisements. I did really cool and highly engaging lessons looking at methods of appeal for argument and then saying, okay, let's like, I could bring that into the text and say, what method of appeal is this character most accessing here? And then it would be like, like, that's <laughs> just next. Like, we would just move on because I didn't have like a, I didn't have a broader scope to like tie it all together. And that took me a while as well to get there. And well, the thing is when, when I would go that route, it was really hard to get in and out of that in a timely fashion and get back to whatever else we were doing. So it always felt like it needed to be this like isolated unit on its own. And we know that any units that we isolate don't always transfer or don't ever like, you know, like they, they exist and kids practice them, but then they don't see them for another school year or two years. It can, uh, it can live in a vacuum. And then it makes it really hard as an instructor to be like, put together a summative for my course. And I did that one thing for like two and a half, three weeks. So when we talk about rhetorical analysis, I guess to kind of give a, to actually answer the question that you started asking me here is the art of argumentation. And so that really begins with understanding this very simple triangle in every argument, there's a speaker, there's an audience, and there's a message. And if that's the only place that you start, and if kids only start looking at who is the speaker? Who is the audience? What is the message? Yep. That's a great place to start. And guess what? In a Shakespeare play, in actually really most plays, that's kind of like the beauty of having a play. The speaker is a very obvious person. The audience is usually a very obvious person. And the message is sometimes like the hard part of the, of figuring out what it says. That's like the nice little push, the little challenge. Um, but that's the rhetorical triangle. And then kind of from there, I would want kids to start understanding the rhetorical situation, which is a little bit deeper into those things around the argument itself. And then, of course, within the argument itself, the appeals, the, the rhetorical choices, the tone, there are all those layers as well. So, I mean, from the simple triangle to the bigger situation and the smaller analysis, there are three different ways that you can either go in just for a little hint or all in crazy bones, Iago style, which is what I well, like to do with. Adults. Yes. Yes. But like, I'm going to, I'm going to take us back because we're going to actually focus for the most part of this episode on just the triangle, just the speaker, the audience and the message. And specifically to like Amanda started to say specifically to plays, this is a really powerful analysis focus, if you will, because you think it through, right? Like a script of a play is something that is written to be produced and to be put up on its feet. Meaning actors are supposed to act these things out. Actors are supposed to put life to these words that are on a page. Actors need to know what is my motivation. All you have to do is look at the rhetorical triangle to find out your motivation to make choices as an actor as to how to play it. So then obviously we're not all, but so those of you who are drama teachers, 
take it from that standpoint. We used to, when I taught drama and we were doing beginning, intermediate, advanced acting classes, we would look at the rhetorical triangle. Like, what do we know about you as a speaker? What do we know about who you're talking to, the audience? And what are you saying? Boom, boom, boom. Therein lies the speaker's motivation and how to deliver lines from a general ed or AP or honors or whatever level English classroom outside of the performing arts, it's the same thing, right? Like it's, it's pulling apart the character's words and the moment that they're in to be able to analyze an argument. And, and so I think if we were to start kind of our conversation here with, if that's, if that's where you're going to go and you're going to stay there, beautiful. I think the next place you can go with your instruction would be introducing your students to, or again, familiarizing your students with the rhetorical situation. So this is a concept that, again, I didn't really learn or understand until way late in my career. But when I did, it made all of that deep nitty gritty analysis so much easier for students. So the rhetorical situation is quite exactly what it sounds like. The situation that the speaker and the audience are in as that message is being given and received. So I like to use the acronym space cat. So space is the, is the rhetorical situation. And then cat are the, the things that are happening inside. So space stands for speaker, purpose, audience, context and exigence. So of those five, exigence is the only, you know, college board floofy doofy word that really just kind of means like the impetus in that moment for that message, right? So like, what's the urgency of the message in that moment? And it's also not a big deal if you don't teach exigence, like, let it go, not a big deal. But understanding all of those things Let's you ask some really interesting questions for your students, like how, right, tone-wise, how would this message be delivered? How would the message change if it was delivered in a different way, knowing the context, knowing the audience? You can start flipping things around and getting kids to do a lot of what-if scenarios, which is really great because then they're not... They're not feeling nervous about comprehension or like perfect, you know, perfect understanding of the play so far. Yeah, they're not like bogged down by the yeah. details of Shakespeare. Like, because we are talking about Shakespeare. They don't get stuck in the iambic pentameter of it all. They instead get to take ownership and play with the play. It's amazing. Mind's blown. Yes. A hundred percent. So that, that's what I really like to do is, you know, Again, we I like to teach that all year long. So this is where it comes into play with whatever Shakespeare play this this school year has in front of us. And that really has been a powerful, not even like a full lesson. I mean, these are these can be just like check-in questions, mm-hmm. right? Like really just kind of by the way, we're watching the play, uh, pause. All right, so there goes Brutus again, and he's talking to himself in his orchard. What's the weather like? Oh, Brutus. Right? How does the weather of the context of this little self-talk, pep talk, you know, how is that impacting the messaging that he's giving himself? Right? What if Brutus was talking to his son, which I don't, he doesn't have a kid for what I know, but like, how could that message change? If the audience changed, how would the message change? Or how would the delivery of that message change? It's just, it's not, it's not something that you need to write big, long lesson plans for. I guess that's no, what not I'm necessarily. <laughs> we actually have, we have four different plays and Caesar is one of the ones Amanda's going to talk about where we have specific scenes that, are, that lend themselves really well. But I'm going to go rogue for a second because I was just thinking about the Hamlet soliloquy 
lesson I did this morning in my senior lit course. And the biggest question that we have when Hamlet is delivering his soliloquy, to be or not to be, is, is he putting on an antic disposition Mm. or has he actually lost his grip with reality? Like, that is the big question, character-driven question that students are answering at the end of this play. And our big essential question for those of you who have been along for the ride with Brave New Teaching and with me on the caffeinated classroom is for this unit with Hamlet and Macbeth, I asked the question, are monsters born or made? The monster being Hamlet in this moment, is he, is this just him putting something on? Or is he losing it? Like, is he, is, is this a person who is in a mental health crisis? And, and what, what is the truth here? depending on your interpretation of that soliloquy, depending on which production you might see. And I like to watch four different mm-hmm. versions of that speech and students get to like take down notes. Love it. The audience changes from interpretation to interpretation. We've got a Mel Gibson where he's completely alone. The audience is just himself. The audience is also his dead ancestors and his dead family members because he's down in the crypt below his castle. You've got Kenneth Branagh's version where his audience is actually just off to the side and it's Polonius and Claudius and they're standing there listening and he's speaking to himself in a mirror, but you are led to believe as a viewer that he knows they're there. You've got, right? Like you've got all of these different versions that even just those two, the audience changes and therefore the answer to the question can change and it gives kids, uh, students, it gives them stuff to play with and like grab onto. Okay. You love this, Caesar. This, this well, this is also just why I love teaching plays, 100%. because you can't you can't do this necessarily with fiction. Fiction is a lot more streamlined in terms of in terms of interpretations. So you have to, I mean, it's a little harder to push. But with with plays, especially especially Shakespeare, it that's fun for kids. And if you're wondering how to make Shakespeare engaging, I mean, these are some of the avenues. They don't. It doesn't. You don't need to turn your classroom into a theater. You just need to know the angles. And those those little nitty questions to get them to start the mechanics of theater, yeah. just to know that there is a stage, and then there's an off stage. And so you ask the question of, well, what you see on the page is this happening on stage or off stage? Is this happening at all? Right? Like those sorts of questions where students get to go, oh, is this even happening? Is this an unreliable narrator who's giving us the soliloquy? And they and and they start to bridge some gaps in their understanding. And again. Shakespeare is intimidating to most people and to be able to break down some of those walls and make it less intimidating is super cool. Hello, friends. Please excuse the interruption of this episode. We wanted to let you know about something very, very exciting coming to you from Brave New Teaching. This is fireworks and confetti. Do you hear it? We are so freaking pumped to bring you the Shakespeare Teacher Festival again. Round two, we are bringing to you an entirely new modern take on Shakespeare in the classroom. So if you joined us last year, that's awesome. But this year, everything is brand new. Absolutely. Last year was Basics with the Bard, and this year's Shakespeare Teacher Festival is Shakespeare in the Modern Classroom. 
with your modern students and exactly how to frame that, what we do. We're going to dive into some specific plays, a little bit deeper of a look at some of the most commonly taught plays, Hem, Romeo and Juliet. Let's frame that differently. And we can't wait to get started. So make sure that you head to the show notes or just go to bravenewteaching.com to get yourself registered. Make sure you bring in a couple of friends with you. It's going to be a good time. All right, let's get back into the show. You want to talk about Caesar? I do. I really do. I really do. <sighs> I think we'll have to link it in the show notes. She's getting really okay. Those of you watching can see can see the moment that Amanda's having, but those of you listening, <laughs> she's like doing the whole neck rubbing thing. Amanda, I, can't, I wish I could remember what episode it was. I forgot about this until we got to this moment in the episode. <laughs> I was in, it was in like our epic failure. We did an epic failures episode like in the very beginning of this podcast. And I oh, talked yeah. about yes. my first year of teaching. <laughs> oh, yes. We will link that episode down below once we find it. Oh my gosh. I had completely forgotten. Okay. It, when I taught Julius Caesar for the first time, it was my first year of teaching. And I was told, teach Julius Caesar. And he was like, okay. And then I got jury duty. For like two and a half weeks or some crazy nonsense like that. I was in a federal trial, like a federal money laundering trial in Chicago, like downtown. Right. So I, and like day one of this unit was like the first day I was gone. So honest to God, I taught Julius Caesar for the first time with a downloaded, like, Oh, I made a workbook and just copy and pasted a bunch of like study guide questions from all over the internet. That was how I taught Julius Caesar my first, probably two years. I don't know that I really the second year I was there for the workbook, but it didn't really change. And you're like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. All, all that is to say is my enjoyment of Caesar didn't come for a long time. Uh, it took a while for this to grow on me. And I learned so much of what I want to share with you through painful, painful failure. But when it comes to rhetorical analysis with Caesar, I think the most popular speech that we like to analyze is, of course, Brutus's speech right at, after Caesar has been dead, right? Friends, Romans, countrymen, live under your ears, that whole thing. Yes, do it. Easy rhetorical analysis. However, my other favorite, and I've done a longer, like I have this on YouTube. I have like a walkthrough close read with me lesson on this. I haven't done any more since then, but I will link that as well. But act two, scene one is the moment where Brutus is standing in his orchard and he takes a moment to completely and totally convince himself of the reasons that he should kill Caesar. And I love this moment because how many times do we sit in the bathroom, look in the mirror, order Chipotle and sit and convince ourselves of something that we know we probably shouldn't do, but we're finding a lot of reasons to do it anyway. Oh, for sure. So it's like a natural, like that's a natural connection for students that I love. I also think that it's incredibly approachable for students. In this close read, we focus on metaphor. There are two big metaphors. There is this ladder metaphor where he's talking about 
ascending the ladder and he's talking about this ladder of success, right? And that, you know, I know that when Caesar, based on the past, based on knowing his ambition, I know that when he gets to the top of that ladder, I know that he will turn his back on everyone. He says that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. And so he he makes this argument for himself, which is, by the way, accurate. We didn't get to the point where like that equals murder. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But he's his, his logic is thoughtful. So I love that metaphor plus this idea of logos. They work together. And that's one thing that kids a lot of times will get stuck on in rhetoric is they think that if they slap one label on there, they've done analysis, I'm done. I'm like, wait a second. And so it's, it's really helpful to find passages where you can usher kids into that structure of the use of metaphor reinforces the logical thinking that those are the kinds of sentences that I want students to have. He has this other metaphor about being a snake um, and that the snake is going to, once it hatches out of the egg, will sting everyone around him. Again, that metaphor reinforces the logic that Caesar is dangerous and therefore should be stopped. I would love for a kid to say that on their own. Right. I got I got a reason. Getting there means picking out the right passages and picking out the right moments to close read so that students can have those good examples under their belt. Yeah. No, and it, it well, and it makes the connections like you were just saying of like, okay, pointing out metaphor is all great and wonderful and explaining the metaphor is all great and wonderful, but like, so what? Right. This is the so what? This is the reason. It's because this speaker is appealing to their audience and here's a strategy they're using to appeal to their audience to get their message across. It, it just like that triangle completes the thought very nicely. And then you can add in a little bit more of the situation, like talking about, you know, this is early morning, right? Like he's, you know, he's about to welcome a bunch of guests to his house. They're on their way. So like, you know, that like the timing is important. Like he, like that's the exigence piece. He has to be firm in his own decision before he can pass that along to other people and probably needs to think through his reasoning because someone's going to ask him, well, why? Right. Well, yeah, this is a pretty big ask there, Rudy. Wow. Yeah. Pretty big ask. And no one actually ever does, which is, you know, fun to ask the kids like, hello, did they ever consider another option? In and of itself. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't. They didn't really consider another option. So, okay. Let's go on to your second example, Othello. And then I'll give my two. Yeah. So Othello, my fave, I'm just toggling. I want to look at it really quick. I love, well, Othello, I taught to sophomores. So 10th grade. And I taught this play front to back only close reading passages from from Iago done. Yeah. Our essential question was what happens when the villain wins? And they were like a spoiler alert. I was like, uh, Shakespearean tragedy. tragedy. You know what? Speaking of today, I said, yeah, well, you know how they die. Something like that. We are just finishing act two of Hamlet. And my student, one student, she looks at me and she goes, spoiler and I said oh honey it's a tragedy everybody's gonna die like everyone dies anyways sorry so a fellow so yeah so so Iago you know we really we focus I mean that that group was a group of students that 
were not necessarily like they not didn't even necessarily do Romeo and Juliet. A lot of these students were in ESL for several years. And then I was like the first English class that they took mm-hmm. and I gave them Othello. Okay. And what I told them was, you can do this. I know it. And then we did rhetorical analysis and it was amazing because really all the kids need is a focus. It can be hard, but they were focused right. and they we were focused why, on- and they needed what to do. Yeah, exactly. And it was let's, figure out how does Iago do it? How does he do it? And every time he opens his freaking mouth, he's manipulating somebody. And so that I love, I love this speech when he's talking to Rodrigo, Uh, Rodrigo, what a moron. What an idiot. (laughs) He really is. And we, the speech where he goes through with, with Rodrigo is act one, scene three, put money Mm -hmm. in thy purse. It starts off, you know, it is merely a lust of the blood and a permission of the will. Come, be a man, drown thyself, drown cats and blind puppies, right? So already kids are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are they doing to the animals? Yeah. Do we need to call PETA? You know, and so like those little moments are just, they're so priceless because even the kid in the back who hasn't talked all year is like, puppies why are you drawing puppies yeah that's so anyway, all of that kind of goes into this this logic again iago is very successful through logic he's also successful through emotion but in this case he's kind of giving this a, analogy of saving up for later put money in thy purse put money in thy man bag. You know, some kids like, you know, have to, you know, whatever. So saving things for later, it's a, on the surface, very confusing statement. But with this much effort, we get into, well, what do you do when you put money away in your wallet? Are you spending it or are you saving it? And all of a sudden we're there and we keep going and going. We look at repetition. Uh, we look at that, the, the analogy as it is. We look at the ethos, pathos, logos, like, which is it? Why would he choose that with Rodrigo, you know, and and so this has really been a successful passage and definitely one worth looking into if you do Othello. I'm sure you do it, but take take a rhetorical analysis approach on Othello with this speech. So, yes, I have two speeches, one from a play that you, well, first of all, I have three because the soliloquy from Hamlet is a great place as well. Yes, yes. Didn't think of it before when we were planning out this episode, but there you go. Macbeth is the other half of my Our Monsters Born or Made unit. And Lady M has just... Ruthless. Best. She's got the best speeches. And her speech at the top of Act 2, convincing him to go forward and kill the king and become the king and because she can't do it right like there it's it's a great like it is a very clear cut speaker clear cut audience and clear cut message and she has to hammer him not pepper but hammer him with reasons as to how and why and most of those reasons are emotional they're pathos appeals because she is breaking him down and it is ruthless. And when you peel that all apart and you really look at her arguments, students kind of go, wow, that was rough. And then you look at it that they go, oh my gosh, she is ruthless. Like she talk about who's the monster here. He does it, but like, who is the monster? Are they born? Are they made? It all leads into an essential question. This is a senior level class. So like that lends itself really quickly in that little speech. And then I have one that's actually from a comedy. 
Little Taming of the Shrew, which is one of the ones that I am going over in our Shakespeare Teacher Festival, this new one that is coming out in just a few weeks. I'm going to spend some time going through a unit that uses the Taming of the Shrew. Catherine's closing monologue, where she is talking about what a good wife does, who a good wife is, is so great for the rhetorical triangle, because it's it's one of those great speeches where you can swap things out. And you mm. can say, well, is her message truly this or is it tongue in cheek? Is her audience the men who she's speaking to, the, the lords or, you know, the nobles that are there? Or is it the other women that are behind her? Is her audience just her husband? Is her audience herself? Is her, right? Like, and all of those different little questions that you can ask make a shift in the message. <laughs> the speaker is who the speaker is. But just those other two anchors can make a lot of really good conversation points for students. And it comes at the very end of the play. So then that makes you question the whole entire thing that has led up until that very moment. And it gives students a lot of like good, cool stuff to what if and to like sink into. Of, of your two examples, I love there's two different situations that you've highlighted that are wonderful to keep in the back of your mind. The Macbeth example is a perfect example of you can layer characterization on top of that because Lady Macbeth knows her audience so well, you know, and that's, that's a really important part. You know, when we talk about rhetorical analysis and we're suggesting that this gets layered into fiction, this is, this is where and why. So Lady Macbeth knows that there is no room for logic in Macbeth's brain right now. Like there is zero. We know he's been hallucinating daggers. He's been doing all kinds of like, we're not in a logical place. And she knows that about him. And she knows more about him than we do even as a a play audience. And so seeing her choose to emasculate him and herself, it just leads to so many, many more conversations about the literature. So you don't even need to, to fully redirect into rhetorical analysis. You could even just kind of do speaker audience message without even labeling it that way to get to deeper conversations about character. And then the same with Shrew with an ambiguous audience, like how that conversation changes. Again, just using that language of talking about speaker audience message. So cool. Absolutely. So These are five really good and very specific examples. Even if you're not going to do a whole entire play, you could, you could take the famous to be or not to be soliloquy. Give kids a little bit of context. Here's who Hammy Ham is. Here's what's going on with Gertie. Here's what's happening with Claudius, blah, blah, blah. Now let's dig in. And you could, you know, like that could be a quick exercise or it could be a full unit using all of one of Shakespeare's or two of Shakespeare's plays or however it's going. You could also do a whole rhetorical analysis of a sonnet. We didn't even get into that because those are all spe- like clear speaker audience message. That's a great way to attack sonnets and other types of poetry. Rhetorical analysis is not just for nonfiction here, people. It's not. And it's actually one more you know, one, one thing we didn't talk about just, you know, just yet was that last piece of, you know, cat and space cat is tone. And tone is something that I feel like I always try to tackle in novels, but that's the hardest place to do it. Doing tone in a play, there's a natural like lesson plan there for us to practice delivery of lines in different tones. And I love doing that with Macbeth, specifically just going back to Macbeth again, you know, his rhetorical questions, you know, is this a dagger I see before me, the handle toward my hand, you know, how 
Should that line be delivered? Is it maniacal? Is it despondent? Is it satirical? Is it gloomy? Is it overjoyed, right? And I I put kids in groups and have them deliver those three lines with like 16 different tones. And we're, I mean, we're rolling by the time it's over because like some of them are hilarious, but like, it's not threatening to deliver three rhetorical questions in front of your classmates or in front of a small group and, and kind of just have fun with it. And all of that goes back to, so what? Which tones worked and why do they work? Well, now we have the rhetorical situation. We have all these pieces and structures in place to, to do that writing, to do that discussion. That's a little bit harder than just identification. It feeds the character work. It feeds the theme work. It feeds all of that analysis. And it gives you something specific to latch onto in creating that analysis. It gives you a vocabulary to use when you're having that kind of a conversation. If you're just getting started too, I will link in the show notes, uh, my Beauty and the Beast lesson. That's one of my favorite places to really start this whole process. Again, with fiction, uh, you could call a screenplay is a play and Lumiere is an actor. He's the speaker in Be Our Guest and Belle is the audience. And we love to use that one too as a nice soft landing place to get the rhetorical analysis and situation conversation started. So I'll have that there for you too. If you're like, I don't know if I'm ready for Shakespeare, but I could probably handle Disney. Like if I need a brush up, I'll go back and I'll look through that lesson. I'm like, right, 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 right. Now I remember that's what we're doing. Here we go moving forward because we cannot possibly expect ourselves to keep everything in our brains all the time. It's great to have places to go. Oh, I'm just like throwing my microphone around here, people. Sorry. (laughs) I'm very excited about it. So thank you all very much for joining us for this episode. We have started to put some of these episodes here and there on YouTube. This is one of them. So if you are joining us from the video watching platform, welcome. If you are joining us from where you regularly get your podcasts, welcome as well. If you would head to iTunes to give us a rating and review, that is what helps other teachers find us and become part of the Brave New Teaching community. As always, head to the show notes for all of the links and all of the resources that we have talked about, including our Shakespeare Teacher Festivals, including the rhetorical analysis lesson that Amanda was talking about. And all the other stuff that we got into, we got into quite a bit today. That was really fun, though. It was really fun. And we have so much more that we can talk about and that we will talk about. But for now, friends, we are going to bid you adieu. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Brave New Teaching. We'd love to keep the conversation going over on Instagram. And while you're there, check out the links in our bio for the most up-to-date events going on in the Brave New Teaching community. Thanks for being here and have a great week at school.